go ahead and give you a little bit of a happy new year as, as we'll be ringing in um, the new year uh, this evening if you're if you weren't daring enough to, to stay up real late and um, got a little bit of a ring on me there. I love Christmas time. I love everything that comes with it. I love the music. Um, but have you ever gotten a song stuck in your head? Maybe you hear it in the morning. Maybe you hear it on your, on your drive to work or whatever. And, and you hear that song in the morning and it, it doesn't fail that throughout the entire day, you either find yourself singing or, or humming that song. That for those of you who, who may not know me, if you're visiting with us this morning, um, I have two daughters. I have a four-year-old and a one-year-old. And our DVR at our house is packed full of cartoons, right? Everything from like Mickey Mouse Clubhouse um, to Elaine of Avalar to uh, My Little Ponies. Like you name it. Like we've got it on our DVR. Because every morning we do what any good parents would do when we wake up. Um, our daughters, or, or let me correct that, when our daughters wake us up, we, we go downstairs, we fix them breakfast, and we do, like I said, what any good parent would do. We put them in their high chair, we put them in their chair in front of the TV, turn the cartoons on, and they get back upstairs and try to finish getting ready, right? And so every morning they're watching these different cartoons, and it never fails that I'll hear one of the theme songs, and that song will get stuck in my head throughout the entire day. And I'll be sitting in my office either humming it or whistling it or even sometimes singing it, right? Someone actually caught me this morning in my office actually singing. And they were looking at me like, what are you doing? I'm like, sorry, that's just what it is. But have you ever gotten a song stuck in your head? And I'm not talking about just like for a day. I'm talking about for like a long time. See, because... On one particular day, I'm, I'm having lunch like I typically do at, at Jet Up Nutrition, just right up the road. Real quick, shout out. If you're looking for a great um, nutritious shake and uh, some great people, why don't you head up there? Um, those, those are my people up there. But I go up there pretty much every day for lunch. And on this particular day, I'm sitting there and I'm drinking my shake. I'm enjoying, you know, the company that I'm with. And a song that I've heard numerous times before comes on the radio that they have playing there in the shop. And I'm not kidding, this song got stuck in my head for about two weeks. Right in the middle of Christmas time, it didn't, regardless of all the different Christmas songs that were playing on the radio and that we're singing here at church, I'm not lying to you, this song was stuck in my head. These lyrics kept ringing in my head for about two weeks. And when Pastor Rick said, hey, I'm going you know, to be out this, sun, this coming Sunday, would you preach? thought, this is what I'm supposed to preach. Because here, here are the words, and some of you may know this song. It's not a Christian song. This says, oh, this has got to be the good life. This has got to be the good life. This could really be a good, good life. The good life. Have you ever thought about the good life before? Like, what is it? I mean, even from a very young age, we're pushed to, to get good grades so that we can get into a good college, so that we can get a good job, so that we can buy a good house in a good part of town, so that our kids can go to a good school, so they can get a good education, so that they can get good grades, so that they can get a good job. And then 
the cycle continues over and over again. Is this really what the good life is? Some would say it's, it's spending our life obtaining and enjoying the pleasures of life. We could spend this entire morning looking at, at scripture passages telling us that while those things aren't necessarily bad, our ultimate fulfillment and joy shouldn't come from things like money or success or pleasure. I've heard other well-intentioned Christians say the good life is when we go to heaven. That's when the good life starts. That's when the good life begins, as if we're supposed to just keep the faith, hold on until we die or when Jesus comes back, because that's when the good life starts, and right now you're just trying to, to get by. It saddens me to think that there are some of us who have reduced the good news of the gospel down to a get-out-of-hell-free card. So what I want to spend this time this morning is looking at and answering the question, if those things aren't necessarily or completely um, accurate, if there's something more, then what is the good life? See, I believe the answer has been right in front of many of us and Many of, of us have never even realized it. Because if you've been to church or you've lived in the Bible Belt for any period of time, I'm pretty sure you've heard one of the most famous Bible passages in the Bible, and it's what we're going to be looking at this morning, is John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. When we hear this verse, I'm sure we've all heard people say things like, you want to know how much God loves you? He loved you so much that he sent Jesus to die for you on the cross, and that if you believe in him, you won't perish, but you'll have eternal life with him in heaven forever. That's how much God loves you. Well, there's not anything necessarily incorrect with that theology, that is not the main thrust of John 3.16. Sure, not going to hell for eternity is an important part of what Jesus came to save us from. He accomplished that by paying the debt of our sins past, our sins present, and our sins that we're going to commit down the road. But salvation is much, much more than having our sins forgiven so that we can go to heaven. Now let me be very clear when I say this. If that was all salvation did, that's more than any of us deserve, and that would be worth preaching this morning. But if you are here today, and all you've done is ask Jesus to forgive your sins so that you wouldn't go to hell, then I think you're missing out on the good life. Said, when we understand what John was originally communicating in this passage that we're going to look at this morning, then we get to see what the true good life is. Because there's three aspects of the good life here in John 3.16. And the first answer is this, what is love? 
What is love? We, we read this verse. We often read it as, for God so loved the world. Because of the way English works, we tend to understand the word so as an adjective, describing the kind of love that God has for us, right? He doesn't just love us. He so loves us. Is this, we're saying, he not only loved us, but he had an increased love for us. The problem with this is twofold. The first is that in 1 John chapter 4, verse 8, the writer tells us that God is love. If God is love, he cannot increase nor decrease in himself. Love is who he is. To say that God not only loved us, but he really loved us, would be the same as saying that water isn't just wet. Water's really wet. See, just as water by its very nature is wet, so God by his very nature is love. The second problem with this is that the Greek word, hutos, that we translate into the English word so, is spelt as an adverb, meaning in this way or in this manner. It answers the question how God loved, not to what degree God loved. Rather than for God so loved the world, it's easier to understand it as for God loved the world, so this is what he did. Or as the Holman Christian Standard translates it, for God loved the world in this way. In other words, this is how or the way God loved us. Love is often a word that we, that we throw around and that we, we misuse and, and we use it to the way in which it aligns maybe with our life. We attempt to define what love is on our terms, make it into something that fits into, into our understanding rather than adjusting what we think to what love is. And this is important because to understand love and the way God expresses it is to better understand and know the character of God. Because when we attempt to self-define love and alter it into what we want it to be, we have then no differently attempted to self-define God and alter him into what we want him to be. Instead, love is what love is, and this is what love did. Love gave his only begotten son. This is why in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. John 15, verse 13 says, no one has greater love than this, that someone would lay down his life for his friends. This is the definition of love, and we cannot distort it. Because if you want to know what the good life is, you have to know what love is. So the first question is, what is love? The second thing that you have to know is, who is Jesus in relation to eternal life? So here in John 3.16, it says that Jesus is the only begotten son. He's the only son of God, right? That's, that's who he is. 
But we know Jesus is not the offspring of God as, as I am my father's son, right? So how do we reconcile this? How do we understand this? John's very specific in starting off his gospel in John 1, 1. That Jesus is God. He was with God. So how are we supposed to reconcile this when it says that he's the only begotten son? See, instead of thinking of son as as an offspring, this distinction carries a meaning of sole error. The only one of its kind with a specific relationship. The only one deserving of what's promised. This is how the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 17 uses it when referring to Isaac, the son of Abraham, the only begotten son. See, the problem is Isaac was not the only son of Abraham. But Isaac was the son of the covenant. He was the only begotten. So here in John 3, 16, Jesus tells us that he is the only one deserving. He's the only one who has the right to and access to the very thing that he now makes available to us through himself. Eternal life. So in other words, God loves us in such a way that he gave up the only one deserving of eternal life. So that those who believe in him would gain eternal life. The third thing that we have to understand in this verse then is this. What is eternal life? Does does eternal life mean, mean living forever? That's not it because no one ceases to exist. Everyone lives forever, either in heaven or in hell. John chapter 3, verse 36 says, The one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who refuses to believe in the Son will not see life, but instead the wrath of God remains in him. John uses this term, eternal life or everlasting life, 18 times in his gospel. And it's used nearly 50 50 times throughout the New Testament. It's important for us to understand that this refers not only to the eternal quantity, but more importantly, divine quality of life. Because this phrase literally literally means life of the age to come. And as I like to say, the good life. But ultimately, what I want us to take away from this morning is, is, is this. It's the fact that John uses this phrase in the present tense. Meaning now. Not to come. Not you got to wait for it. Not just, you know, keep holding on and wait until it gets here. But uses it as a, this is available now. There are a number of scriptures that speak of everlasting life as as something that we possess 
now. John 4, 14, John 5, 24, John 6, 27, John 6, 40, verse 47 as well. All of these verses are pointing to this eternal life, this, this, this very gift and thing in which we have in Christ Jesus is not something that is down the road that you have to put off, that you have to wait to obtain, but instead is something that is supposed to be lived out, experienced now. Because John ultimately answers the question, what is eternal life? In John chapter 17, verse 3. In Jesus' prayer to the Father, this is what he prays for us. This is eternal life. That they may know you, the only true God, and the one you have sent. The good life is knowing God. Now, I'm sorry if that was maybe a little bit anticlimactic for some of you, like you thought maybe there's like, oh, there's some secret sauce coming that I've been missing, right? No, here, here's what it is. Eternal life is knowing God. But see, the key to understanding what that means is understanding how the Bible uses the word know. See, know is, is speaking of much more than just an intellectual knowledge. It's not just know of God. It can be seen in hundreds of times throughout the biblical scriptures, like in Genesis chapter 4, where it says, Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived a son. Adam didn't just intellectually know Eve. That won't produce children. But instead, what... The Bible is saying here is that Adam had an intimate, personal experience with her. This was speaking of, of a knowing between a man and a woman in the most intimate possible way. Likewise, when Jesus said eternal life was knowing God, he's speaking of having an intimate and close personal relationship with God. Because the greatest of what God desires for us is that we would experience him. Is that we would have a relationship with him. We become recipients of the greatest act of love for the purpose of receiving a relationship with him. Another way of saying this is God wants us to experience every aspect of who he is and it's only through the experience of God in him giving Jesus Christ that we would experience eternal life, that we would experience the good life. So let me ask you, on a scale of 1 to 10, how much of God are you experiencing in your life? Are you experiencing every aspect of him that you can in this life? Because that's why he loves us. And that's why Jesus gave his life. Not just so that we wouldn't have to pay the penalty of our sin, but so that we could experience the goodness of an intimate, personal relationship with him.
during the years that I've I've worked in student ministry, I've had numerous conversations with students and, and even adults as well. And I'll ask them this same question. How's your relationship with God? How, how, how are you experiencing him in your life? And unfortunately, most of, most of the time, the way this is answered is, well, you know, talking about how much or how little they, they pray or they read their Bible or, or they attend church. And unfortunately, some of the most lost people in the Bible read their Bible, pray, and even regularly attend church, yet have never experienced what it is to be in a relationship with Jesus Christ. This is what Jesus reminded the people of the Pharisees in his day. Look at them. They pray all the time. They can recite scripture. They never miss a gathering. And then Jesus gives us what I believe to be the scariest passage in the Bible. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 through 23, it says this. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? And do many mighty works in your name. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. I never had a relationship with you. This should be the scariest verse in the Bible. Because for many of us, we have reduced the gospel to, I'm good. I'm saved, I'm getting into heaven, I'm good. We miss out on what it is that God is ultimately wanting us to experience, and that's himself. So let me ask you again, on a scale of one to ten, how much of a relationship with God are you experiencing in your life? your relationship ritualistic? Just do it because that's what I'm supposed to do? Or are you experiencing God and husbands and wives, are you experiencing God in your relationship with one another? Mothers and fathers, are you experiencing God in your relationship with your children? Are you experiencing God when, when you go to work? Are you experiencing God when, when you're stuck in traffic? Are you experiencing God in every aspect of your life, because that is ultimately why Christ died. So that we could experience him in every aspect of our life, so that we can know him in an intimate and personal way. That is why Christ died. Not just so that we can get out of hell. Like I said before, if that was the case, that would still be worth preaching this morning. But I believe God has called us to a good life and centered on a relationship with him. 
So as we close out 2017, begin a new year tomorrow, I want to challenge us as individuals. I want to challenge us as a church to commit ourselves to experiencing more of a relationship with Jesus Christ in which we experience the fullness of God. In just a moment, I'm going to pray. And if you want to know more about this, I'll be standing down in the front and and we'll have some individuals as well that here would would love to talk to you more in depth about the good life and what it means and how it can begin and how you you can begin to experience an expression of faith in Jesus Christ so that you can experience, so that you can have a relationship with our Lord. Let me pray.